Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Want to listen to You Must Remember This without ads? Now you can when you subscribe to our new premium offerings on Apple Podcasts and Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth or open You Must Remember This on Apple Podcasts to learn more. You must a kiss is just a kiss. A Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment of our ongoing series, Erotic 90s. So we can show the sex act all over the place. I have seen one or two things in my life, but never, never anything like this. There are four episodes left in Erotic 90s, and as we wrap up this long project, we will be revisiting some of the characters and themes from earlier in Erotic 80s and 90s, and tracking how they re-emerged in the late 90s. Today's episode connects back to our 90s episode on Drew Barrymore and Alicia Silverstone, and the concept of the 90s Lolita. It is also the last of several episodes dealing with films directed by Adrian Lyne, the British filmmaker who helped to define the so-called MTV sensibility with Flashdance, who helped to create a home video market for unrated, uncut erotic dramas with nine and a half weeks, and who had massive hot-button theatrical blockbusters with Fatal Attraction and Indecent Proposal. Today's episode is about Adrian Lyne's adaptation of Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. 
Though frequently characterized in the press during the 90s as a remake of Stanley Kubrick's 1962 film, Line insisted he was in fact going back to the source material in an attempt to produce a more faithful adaptation. A primary reason to make a movie of Lolita in the 1990s, according to Line, was because in the early 1960s, Kubrick could only visualize the barest hints of the sexual activity between preteen Dolores and her stepfather, 40-something Humbert Humbert, leaving the audience with plausible deniability about what was actually happening in the story. Agent Irving Swifty Lazar represented the Nabokov family in brokering deals to sell the rights to the novel both to the Kubrick camp and then later to producers representing Line. As Lazar put it when the latter deal closed in 1990, the novel felt, quote, more makeable as a movie today because when it was sold 30 years ago, there were all these prohibitions and censorship. You could not show two people in bed together. Now, the sexuality of the original piece could be more explicit. This was a logical thing to think in 1990, months after the NC-17 rating was established. There were hopes that filmmakers might be able to return to something like the early 70s, when there was a commercial lane for sexually explicit, transgressive film. But as we know, by 1997, the pendulum had swung back the other way. By then, there was no commercial viability in an NC-17 theatrical release of any movie. But this movie was hampered by a growing awareness, or maybe more accurately, a national panic, over pedophilia. Today, we have Pizzagate, the child trafficking panic blockbuster Sound of Freedom, and insanity over the idea that drag equals grooming. In the late 90s, passionate, possibly overblown, and potentially disingenuous anxiety over protecting children manifested in Republicans pushing into law something called the Child Pornography Prevention Act, while the news media breathlessly turned the murder of six-year-old beauty pageant princess John Benet Ramsey into entertainment. Adrian Lyne began developing Lolita in 1990 and was not prepared for how it would be received later in the decade. As Line put it in 1998, Nothing had prepared me for the hand-wringing by those who believed that to show a thing is the same as endorsing it or the de facto banning of a film by every studio in Hollywood, even those who, from the other side of their mouths, were telling me it was the best film I had made. Truthfully, Line should have been prepared for commercial distributors refusing to touch Lolita because that's what initially happened with the novel. On finishing his manuscript in 1954, Nabokov could not initially find an American publisher. And as he wrote later, the problem was the subject matter itself and not his execution of it. As Nabokov wrote, their refusal to buy the book was based not on my treatment of the theme, but on the theme itself. There are at least three themes which are utterly taboo as far as most American publishers are concerned. The two others are a Negro white marriage, which is a complete and glorious success, 
resulting in lots of children and grandchildren. And the total atheist who lives a happy and useful life and dies in his sleep at the age of 106. The only question was, how much had things changed in 40-plus years? Shortly before Lolita's long-delayed release in 1998, an academic named James R. Kincaid published a book called Erotic Innocence, studying the cultural history of mankind's impulse to eroticize children, while at the same time demonizing the same even as the demonization took the form of virtually fetishizing the gory details of child rape and the hunting and punishment of sexual predators. Because this was such a hot topic at that moment, this scholarly text was reviewed in the New York Times. Though critic James Campbell's review wasn't wholly positive, he understood that the moment was ripe for a study of, quote, the subject of the corruption of children with which we titillate, outrage, and console ourselves by turns. The fear that sex might corrupt them is sexually exciting for us. This is where American culture was circa 1998, and we're in a similar place now. A small but loud segment of the populace is so worked up about protecting children from sexuality that they've worked themselves into a frenzy equivalent to arousal. As we'll see, in the late 90s, this social climate made it very difficult for a film like Lolita to reach an audience capable of thinking critically about the material. Join us, won't you, for chapter 18 of Erotic 90s. We've talked before about how Line used the clout from his big blockbuster hits to get passion projects made with less commercial appeal. The best example of this is Jacob's Ladder, a big-budget psychedelic art film ostensibly about post-war PTSD, which got greenlit after the success of Fatal Attraction. Jacob's Ladder was a film that no other filmmaker could have made both in the sense that it makes use of Line's mastery of style and in that no studio would have taken a gamble on it had it not been proposed by a director whose commercial instincts had proven to be almost flawless. As it turned out, Jacob's Ladder would not be a commercial success when it was released in November 1990. But leading up to its release... Line still had all the power he had had in the immediate wake of Fatal Attraction. And so he was able to put together his dream project and another package that possibly only Adrian Line could have moved past the starting line. Carol Co. Pictures, the company run by Mario Casar and Andrew G. Vanya, which had made its name on the Rambo films and had also financed Jacob's Ladder, put up $1 million to acquire the rights to Nabokov's novel for Line, who hired Fatal Attraction writer James Dearden to work on the adaptation. The LA Times published a story in June 1990 announcing the project, in which writers Sean Mitchell and John M. Wilson let one quote from Dearden after another just hang there, with no commentary. 
These words from Dearden form the entire last 120 words of a 350-word story. Quote, Obviously, you don't want to get into pedophile pornography and the exploitation of children's images. This film is in a very different light. I see it as a story of a doomed love affair, ultimately a tragic love story. If you're honest, it's possible for a man of 40 to be infatuated with a girl of 12 or 13 or 14. It's really not that abnormal to be attracted to a young girl. It's really the image of youthful beauty that's a temptation and damnation for Humbert Humbert's weakness. There's a kind of hopelessness about his infatuation. She's not his victim. If you think about it, Lolita comes out on top. Humbert Humbert is destroyed by it. If you think about it, in the book, Lolita dies in childbirth at the age of 17, having never known anything like adult agency. And to quote Nabokov, Humbert was fond of little girls, not simply young girls. Nymphets are girl children, not starlets and sex kittens. You may remember that by the time she is 14, he refers to her as his aging mistress. But even if Dearden's read on Lolita was somewhat distorted, as we've talked about before, his version, the version that we just heard corrected by Nabokov, is what Lolita came to mean for a lot of people in the 1990s. The novel's cultural legacy is the idea of the hot young thing who unmans older men, wrote Tad Friend in Vogue in 1996, who added, Lolita now usually signifies a self-assured vixen. Lolita became an idea divorced from the original text or any adaptation, and that idea was a vehicle through which to normalize the notion that, of course, men are helpless before the allure of blossoming sexuality, and also some girls far years younger than any age of consent are just more mature than others and are capable of participating in a love affair with a 40-year-old man. And girls like that aren't victims. They're vamps, liable to suck the lifeblood out of their old man prey. Nabokov's self-justifying narrator, for whom 14 is a little too ripe, compares the children he's attracted to to demons sent to destroy men like him. This is one aspect of the book that many seem to have taken literally. James Dearden did not end up writing Adrian Lyne's Lolita. In a review of the four scripts from four different writers that Lyne commissioned, which ran in the publication Literature Film Quarterly, Dearden's script was savaged by Christopher C. Hudgens as, quote, a resounding failure, pedestrian and wrong-headed in tone. Dearden's draft was followed by versions by Harold Pinter, the playwright whose previous literature to film adaptations included The Go-Between, The Last Tycoon, and The Comfort of Strangers, David Mamet, who radically restructured the source material, and finally, Stephen Schiff, who would become the sole credited screenwriter. Hudgens' analysis, which was published before the film was released, diminishes Schiff's script as 
written by committee. Schiff acknowledged keeping elements of Pinter's script and added that both writers worked off of a detailed outline made by Line. How did Stephen Schiff, a magazine writer who had never authored a screenplay, win out over two of the most respected artists in the field, plus the guy who wrote Fatal Attraction? In the early 90s, Schiff had written 40 pages of an adaptation of Lolita on spec at the urging of Lily Finney Zanuck, producer of Cocoon and Driving Miss Daisy, and wife of Richard Zanuck, the son of Daryl F. Zanuck, the mogul who ran 20th Century Fox for decades. This spec went nowhere, and then in 1994, Richard Zanuck gave Schiff a call, telling him to send his Lolita pages because this movie's about to die. The most recent script by Pinter still wasn't quite what Line wanted. Zanuck needed a writer to come in and revitalize the script, and because Carol Coe was going through bankruptcy, as Schiff put it, any real solution was going to have to be cheap. Schiff turned out to be that solution. In their collaboration on the script, he had to be a steadying force when Line would succumb to a wave of paranoia, saying things like, They're going to have my ass. They're going to hound me from the theaters, lock me up, and throw away the fucking key, man. At the same time, one of the reasons at least one of the previous drafts didn't work is because they began the film by spelling out Humbert's loathsomeness. That was not the way Line wanted to tell the story, because if everyone in the story sees the pedophile in him, there is no story. Line told Schiff that Humbert couldn't be a foul, creeping creature. His access to the girl depends on his guise as mild-mannered, handsome stranger. Within the action of the film, he has to charm everyone in order to be able to get away with it. And for the telling of the film to at all approximate the narrative style of the book, we have to see the action through the eyes of our unreliable narrator and do the work ourselves to understand exactly how and why his version is unreliable. As Schiff later said, it doesn't matter that she batted her eyelashes or ate an apple provocatively or initiated it or enjoyed it. Humbert learns that he's stolen her childhood and destroyed two lives. By the end, the story is a repudiation of the Joey Buttafuoco defense. Buttafuoco, you may or may not remember, was the boyfriend-slash-pimp of so-called Long Island Lolita, Amy Fisher, the teenage girl who shot Joey's wife, Mary Jo. Both Joey and Mary Jo claimed Joey couldn't be guilty of statutory rape and other charges related to his sexual relationship with Amy because the 16-year-old appeared to want it and love it. Schiff would stick with Lolita to the end, but the producer who brought him in didn't make it to production. In an LA Times story announcing his departure from the picture, Richard Zanuck said, Adrian is a dear friend, then explained that when the film start date was pushed back from June to September, it conflicted with another unnamed project that he was committed to produce. No one seemed to believe that. The likelier story was that the budget of Lolita kept rising, 
And Zanuck, described by The Times as having a reputation as a stickler on meeting production deadlines and budgets, saw trouble and got out while he could. The LA Times quoted an anonymous MGM executive. Zanuck brought prestige to this picture. He's sort of like the good housekeeping seal of approval on a production with dicey subject matter. Basically, this is the story of a 40-year-old man lusting after a very young teenager. Pedophilia is a tough sell. And somehow Zanuck's name took away some of the taint, if you know what I mean. Around here, most people believe Dick thought he just wouldn't have enough control. And for him, it just didn't sit well. This quote, acknowledging that Lolita was tainted, was published before the movie was even made. The story also noted that MGM, where the anonymous exec was employed, was a studio that considered distributing Lolita, connecting their decision not to do so to Zanuck's departure. This was a portent of things to come. If Lolita had had a man with one of Hollywood's most legendary last names behind it, it might have been perceived differently. As it was, much as Nabokov suspected the publishers who rejected his manuscript didn't even finish reading it, Lines Lolita became damaged goods before anyone had seen a frame of it. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast i'm lauren sherman the writer behind puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet and i'd like to welcome you to my new show fashion people on every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. With Zanuck out... The production of Lolita was overseen by Mario Casar and Joel B. Michaels of Carol Co. Even though that company filed for bankruptcy in 1995 after the disastrous release of Cutthroat Island, a pirate movie starring Gina Davis and directed by her then-husband, Rennie Harlan. 
In selling off Carol Coe's assets to raise money to pay their debtors, Kassar retained the rights to Lolita, and thus the right to act as producer on the film, while offloading the financial responsibility to a French industrial company called Chargeur, which at that time owned the venerable media brand Pathé. But by the time the movie went into production, the ex-Carolco team had a lot of stink on their names from the still smoldering flames of their company. Not only that, but this was now a movie being made outside of the American studio system, and yet its projected $40 million budget was far higher than the average 90s indie. Even the biggest budget indies of this era, such as the Best Picture winning The English Patient, topped out at a $30 million budget. Much more common were films like Fargo or The Usual Suspects, both budgeted at less than $10 million. Lolita would have had to have made $80 million at the box office to turn a profit on a $40 million budget. And as we'll see, in the end, it would cost much more to make than that and gross far, far less. Lai needed a decent chunk of change because he wanted to shoot Lolita's road trip portions on actual American roads and in actual small towns. A cost Kubrick had avoided by shooting entirely in England, which members of the new Lolita team cited as one of the problems with the earlier film. Line had also made an expensive decision in casting. Performers under the age of 18 can only work a certain number of hours a day. They also need to be provided with on-set tutors and chaperones. In a film involving nudity, the use of an actress under the age of 18 would mandate a body double. All of these expenses add up. Though Line and Co. stressed that they were trying to be more faithful to Nabokov than Kubrick had been, Nabokov famously spoke of the impossible task of casting the role of Lolita. Quote, It was perfectly all right for me to imagine a 12-year-old Lolita. She only existed in my head. But to make a real 12-year-old girl play such a part would be sinful and immoral, and I will never consent to it. The new Lolita filmmakers disparaged Kubrick's decision to cast Sue Lyon, then 15, as a character who was 12 in the book and who seemed to be in high school in the 1962 version. Schiff described Lyon as, quote, a 15-year-old who nevertheless looked like a 20-year-old hooker. Our Lolita was really going to be about a grown man's obsession with a child, not about a grown man's obsession with a hot young chick. The original casting notice for Lyon's film specified that they were looking for an actress who was, quote, Legally 18, must look 13 to 17. Nudity required. But there was debate amongst the filmmakers who fretted that 18-year-olds generally do not look like 12-year-olds and believed that to use an actress who the audience understood to be older than the age of consent would strip the story of its power. As production designer John Hutman put it, If you put Hugh Grant next to Drew Barrymore, what is the story? Humbert could not be played by a 30-year-old actor and Lolita by an 18-year-old. No one looks twice at that kind of coupling. 
It's true that Drew Barrymore, who was 20 when Lolita was filmed, would not have been credible casting. But then she had also already played a version of this story when she was 16 in Poison Ivy, opposite an actor who was 42 years older than her at that time. Compared to Tom Skerritt, who was born in the 1930s, Hugh Grant seemed quite age-appropriate for Drew. And 10 years later, they would star together in a much-beloved rom-com called Music and Lyrics. The Lolita filmmakers were in a tricky situation. While casting, they still believed they were living in a more permissive time than Kubrick had. But of course, permissiveness in culture is a pendulum that swings back and forth. Obviously, much had changed in the 15 years from 1962 to 1977, when 12-year-old Brooke Shields was cast as a 12-year-old living in a brothel in Pretty Baby. As you know, if you listen to our Polly Platt season, Pretty Baby was partially inspired by Platt's observations of the way Hollywood prized youthful beauty. She saw that the concept of youthful beauty was a slippery slope, and she was terrified for the fates of her own preteen daughters growing up in that climate. In order to turn these feelings into a narrative, the allegorical form she found was a story set in a pre-prohibition New Orleans whorehouse in which a 12-year-old girl's virginity is put on the auction block. Cut to another 18 years later. No one on Line's team ever contemplated casting an actual 12-year-old girl as Lolita. But as Hutman indicated, and as Pretty Baby explored, because Hollywood was already so practiced in normalizing extreme age differences between older men and the younger women they covet, if you soften the age difference in Lolita, there is no story. Humbert is one of literature's great, or maybe I should say worst, masters of self-justification. His version of the story, delivered through language, has to be contrasted with visuals that no one can justify. In order to come close to approximating what the novel is about, the age difference between Humbert and Lolita, and between Lolita and her mother, has to look extreme on screen. You have to believe that she's 12, or at least closer to it than to 18. Line found his Lolita via an unsolicited audition tape. Dominique Swain, a freshman at Malibu High School, filmed herself reading segments from the book. After auditioning dozens of actresses, many of them a decade older than the character, Line was struck by Swain. As he told Vogue, I got her at exactly the right time. One minute, she'd look nine. And the next minute, there'd be the woman. You hear this quote and wish Line had reversed the order of statements which is, in fact, what he does when he introduces Swain's character in the film. Jeremy Irons' Humbert is being shown around the house where he might rent a room by his prospective landlord, Charlotte Hayes, played by Melanie Griffith. When they get to the backyard, Charlotte wants to show her would-be tenant her lilies, but he can't take his eyes off of her daughter. Line films Swain lying on her belly in the grass, fully clothed, but her dress has been made soaking wet by a nearby sprinkler. 
One side of the frame is anchored by Swain's pigtails, the other by her toes, and her round butt sits right in the middle. The soft, romantic score swells, as does Humbert's rapture. And then the actress turns to the camera and smiles, and we see that her teeth are imprisoned by a retainer. This is the punchline, the record scratch. This is where the illusion of sexuality shatters to reveal that what we're looking at is a child. But Humbert's reverie doesn't shatter, of course. Lolita's metal-mouthed smile seals the deal for him. Lolita's retainer was Swain's own retainer. The actress said she decided to say yes to the role only after discussing it with Rosalinda, her imaginary friend. She told one visitor to the set that she wanted to be an actress, quote, for attention, to be in the spotlight, and have everyone's eyes on you and have control over the situation. Her mother said she worried, quote, about the dirty old men who will see this movie and think that is my daughter up there. In fact, any footage of Lolita's unclothed body up there was not her daughter, but a body double. In the many, many articles touching on this aspect of the filming that I read, the double was never named, but was said to be anywhere in age from 19 to 21. IMDb credits the performer as Dawn Moore whose profile doesn't specify her birth year. In Vogue, Tad Friend noted that the double's body, quote, looks much more womanly than 15-year-old Dominique Swain. It's likely Friend saw an earlier cut of Lolita than what is available today. As in the released version of the movie, there is not an apparent difference between Swain and the body double. But it's also hard for me to imagine watching Lines Lolita with an eye towards looking for the difference in bodies. This is a genuinely disturbing film in a way that Kubrick's version is not. Unlike so many other Adrian Lyne movies, Lolita is not fun to watch. And to the extent the filmmaker uses the tools of eroticism that he was well-practiced in, it doesn't have the same effect as it often had in his films of the past because Dominique Swain looks like a little girl. Though Humbert's infatuation is often played for comedy, particularly in the first half, in the second half of the film, once Humbert has absconded with Dolores and has begun regularly raping her, and as she begins using his desire against him, ultimately aiding her escape, the film's perspective becomes much more complicated, and the action on screen, frankly hard to watch. Lolita is not an explicitly sexual film, much as in his last movie, Indecent Proposal, Line often introduces a sexual situation and then dissolves away, although, as we'll see, the edit of the film was somewhat out of his hands. But it is an explicitly violent film. Humbert hits Dolores a lot. Though Line dramatizes the initial consummation in a way that's extremely faithful to the book, 
with Humbert's famous self-delusion that it was the little girl who seduced him. Very quickly after this, the director starts revealing that the real Dolores feels very differently than the fantasy version that we see through Humbert's eyes. In scenes and shots in which she's interacting with Irons, Swain looks and acts like the sex kitten Humbert sees. In one fairly amazing sequence referencing the noir films of the period in which the movie is set, he even sees her as a pint-sized femme fatale, even as she's slurping an ice cream soda. But Line also shows her outside of Humbert's gaze, and in these images, we see her as the wounded captive she is. The contrast of Lolita as seen through Humbert's eyes, and Dolores when she is alone, crying into her pillow or seething with contempt in the backseat of the car, allows us to understand the lie in the images of Humbert apparently bringing her to orgasm. He says via voiceover that he's in paradise, and it's very clear that she is not. The second half of this film is not empathetic toward him at all, and it does show the resiliency and courage of Dolores, which the author's wife, Vera Nabokov, lamented that so many readers overlooked in the novel. Lines Lolita manages to conjure enough of the experience of reading the novel that the areas in which the film omits or changes pertinent details of the novel are glaring. And I think it's fatal problem. To name a few examples, Lyons film has an early flashback to Humbert's youthful infatuation with a girl named Annabelle, whom he met on the beach in France. In the book, they are both 13. In the movie, they are said to be 14, although the actress who plays Annabelle looks about 26. The last we see of Annabelle in the line film is of her apparently taking off her dress before young Humbert, followed by a dissolve implying consummation, and then a cut to Humbert crying over the knowledge that Annabelle died a few months later. In the book, their consummation was interrupted. There's a difference between the scar of virginity lost interruptus and a memory of a first love lost. One is the kind of masculine failure that festers and creates a demand for satisfaction, and the other is a bummer. In the book, it's clear that he never had sex with Annabelle, and that drives him to look for a new Annabelle who he can have sex with. In Line's movie, the thing that's denied Humbert is a lasting romance, cut off when Annabelle dies. It's a small thing, but in that it sets up Humbert's quest as romantic rather than tied to primal sexual imprinting, it feels like a blunder in adaptation. Another issue is the use of the character Claire Quilty, the pedophile playwright who Dolores believes she's in love with slash uses to escape Humbert. Played by Peter Sellers, Quilty was a major character in Kubrick's film, a masculine rival ever taunting Humbert with his omnipresence. This was seen by many as a flaw, especially since Sue Lyons' Lolita seems like an older teenager. That film ends up feeling like an only slightly twisted love triangle. Line and Schiff go the other way with Quilty. Played by Franklin Jella, 
On the rare occasions when we do see Quilty throughout the film, he is largely, literally, in the shadows. This seems to be Lyne's stylistic way of explaining why Humbert is oblivious to the other man's presence and can't figure out who took Lolita away from him until she tells him. But in his movie, the final showdown between the two men doesn't work. In the book, Nabokov likens it to the end of a Western and makes it clear that, as often happens in a Western, two criminals are fighting over the theft of something that didn't belong to either of them in the first place. But in Lyne's version, because Quilty has barely been seen in the movie, Langella's very over-the-top performance in his final scene feels like a miscalculation. And though for unknown reasons, Lyne declines to visually depict the fact from the novel that Quilty's house is essentially a brothel where adults can buy sex with underage partners, his version comes close to giving the sense that Humbert is a hero for taking down a sex trafficker whose crimes are much more numerous than his own. It becomes sort of like the ending of Taxi Driver, but without the irony. It would be a much more grievous error of adaptation to omit Quilty entirely, but Lyne's film feels like it never figured out what to do with him. What does feel special about Lyne's film is the way it becomes the story of exactly how, around the onset of puberty or even earlier, girls are taught by our culture to harness the power of their sexuality and to use it as a tool of survival, even to put a price on it. In that sense, it could be thought of as a prequel to Poison Ivy, albeit one that is devoid of campy thrills and was, for me, impossible to watch in a single sitting. It's a more or less faithful adaptation of Nabokov to the letter of his text, but American filmgoers are less practiced than literature readers in interpreting a movie on multiple levels. When you read Humbert's narration, you can understand that it is unreliable, that he is skewing things in order to make his case that his love for Lolita shouldn't be treated as harshly in society as it was. It's very, very difficult to assume that a movie viewer, especially one who is not versed in the film noir practice of unreliable narration, is going to understand those layers if you don't give them more of a helping hand. Maybe it was out of his feeling that the film would need some advance explanation, that Line welcomed several members of the press onto the set or into his editing room. Perhaps he was thinking it would help the film find a distributor. If anything, it might have done the opposite. Unable to contextualize what they were seeing within a finished film, more than one writer for major outlets published alarming details in an alarmist tone which reached a general audience sometimes years before they had the ability to see the movie and judge for themselves. For instance, in August 1996, Benjamin Svetsky wrote in Entertainment Weekly that, quote, Line's new movie contains moments so borderline pervy they'd make Calvin Klein queasy. This presumably refers to the designer's TV ads for his denim line from the previous year, 
which featured teenage models in a wood-paneled room answering questions from an off-screen voice, as though, to quote Vogue, they could have been auditioning for a budget porn film. There were reports at the time that the FBI was considering investigating the shoot under child pornography statutes before Klein pulled the ads and apologized. Anyway, Svetky's piece almost seemed designed to scare off anyone who was contemplating taking a chance on releasing Lolita. When the film finally hits theaters at an unknown date since it still has no U.S. distributor, Svetky speculated, it could open an entire second front in the conservative anti-Hollywood culture war. Two months after this piece ran, President Clinton signed into law an omnibus spending bill, which included the Child Pornography Prevention Act. Initiated by Republican Senator Orrin Hatch, the CPPA outlawed any and all depiction of people under the age of 18 engaging in sexual activity. As the Washington Post reported, it broadened the previous legal definition of child porn to, quote, include images that do not involve children at all, including movies that use adult actors to portray minors and even images created on computers. Lawyers and scholars specializing in the First Amendment and civil liberties were opposed to the act because it could, to quote the Post, allow prosecution of legitimate works, potentially including such films as kids, and could cause a chilling effect on future productions based on such works as Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. More than that, if the CPAA had actually been enforced as it was written, it would have rendered illegal teen TV soaps such as Dawson's Creek, which debuted two years later and included in its first few episodes a plotline about a teenage boy having sex with his adult teacher. A film we are going to talk about next week, which was also released in 1998, features actresses in their 20s playing high school students with active sex lives. And no one seems to have considered charging its makers with child pornography. So obviously, in practice, enforcement of the CPAA was selective at best. And in 2002, the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutionally broad. But in the immediate year or so after it went into law, no one knew what was going to happen. In 1997, before Lolita was shown to prospective distributors, the film's producers hired a lawyer to advise Line as to how to re-edit Lolita to make sure it conformed to the new child pornography law. Line and screenwriter Schiff spent weeks in the editing room with this lawyer, debating the words of the statute and how to shape certain scenes in the movie to get the point across without running afoul of the law. In the end, according to Schiff, the scenes had lost some of their rhythm, some of their power, but at least they stayed. This cut of Lolita was submitted to the MPAA and given an R rating with no requests for edits. Shortly after the bill passed, a piece about Lolita ran in the January 1997 issue of Vanity Fair in which journalist Charles Fleming quoted Robert Peters, a spokesman for morality in media, 
a religious organization that took it upon themselves to police the Child Pornography Prevention Act. Of Lolita, Peter said, I would almost bet my bottom dollar that somewhere in the footage of that film there exists real child pornography. The girl herself was used in situations that just weren't right. Peters, of course, was speculating wildly, almost foaming at the mouth about such footage. But Vanity Fair couched him as an expert, so what did that matter? This Vanity Fair story began with Vladimir Nabokov's son, Dmitry Nabokov, watching a reel of raw footage from the film while it was still in production. The footage included a sex scene during which the director could be heard off camera saying, Brilliant. Move your ass more. Ah, fuck, it's good. Oh, it's beautiful. Arch your back a bit, darling. Fucking great. If you've listened to our previous episodes dealing with Lyons films, you know this was his standard way of directing a sex scene. Acting as what he called a cheerleader, which performers like Demi Moore said helped rid them of self-consciousness because the director was making himself part of the inherent silliness of the activity. Fleming makes it clear that Lyne was speaking to the adult body double, who was frequently subbed in for Swain while shooting, But he also claims that Vladimir Nabokov's son watched this footage with, quote, a look on his ashen face suggesting he believes his father is soon going to rise from the grave and come for him. We all squirmed in our seats, watching intimate footage from the film, Schiff said, adding, and that was exactly as it should have been. If this film didn't from time to time make an audience acutely uncomfortable, we weren't doing our job. But Fleming also quoted an anonymous studio executive explaining why no studio would touch this movie. First of all, you're remaking a classic film directed by Stanley Kubrick, one of our most revered filmmakers, which means the critics will kill you. And without the critics on your side, you have no defense against the charge that it's kiddie porn. Adrian told me that he intended to be absolutely faithful to the novel. For Christ's sake, it's a 12-year-old girl. A lot of anonymous studio executives made their voices heard through a myriad of press pieces about why Lolita couldn't find a U.S. distributor. One told the New York Times that the subject seemed too real, adding, who are you going to like in the movie? As another unnamed exec put it, it's pedophilia, and that's a very sensitive subject in America. All of this may have been what we would today call virtue signaling, dressing up an economic issue in a costume of morality. The truth was, as one distributor put it, no one thought it would generate income. Another disturbing facet of the pre-release press blitz was a tendency amongst both journalists and people working on the movie to way overreach in their attempts to explain why the story of Lolita should be filmed and or why sex between adults and young girls is fine actually. In his November 1996 Vogue feature, Tad Friend wound himself into knots trying to explain the 90s Lolita culture with both sides' even-handedness, 
that justified adult men's lust for minors, while also saying it is, of course, bad, you know. His musings included gems such as, Girls can also seem enticing to older men because they're unchallenging and financially dependent. Choosing them is a way to turn the clock back on feminism. He credits Nabokov's novel as having made the Alicia Silverstone Aerosmith videos, quote unquote, possible. And he reminds the reader, the reason sex with minors is immoral is that while they may look and move like nascent Sharon Stones, they don't have any idea what it all means. But Lines Dolores does seem to know what it means, according to Friend, who writes that Dolores's coy removal of her retainer is as sexually charged as another woman's peeling off her slip. Sexual charge is in the eye of the beholder, I guess. But every instance in which Swain takes out her retainer plays to me like a joke on Humbert. A report of much worse justification came from Elizabeth Kay, who visited the Lolita set and published a story in the February 1997 issue of Esquire. Quote, At times, people working on the movie felt compelled to defend its subject, often for the oddest of reasons, among them that since girls must cease to be virgins, they may as well be deflowered by their fathers, who can at least be said to love them. One principal figure in the action, denying Humbert's calamitous effect on Lunita, invoked a female friend who had been sexually abused as a child, yet had emerged miraculously unscathed. It must be noted that this writing ran inside a magazine that had a picture of Swain on the cover, her hair in braids, her body in a too tight vintage pinafore, her finger awkwardly touching the tongue of her open mouth. Any criticism or even critical thinking about the Lolita project always seemed to be paired with imagery that begged for an emotional response of arousal, of outrage, rather than an intellectual one. When Lolita was finished, fully cleared by the lawyers and rated R by the MPAA, its producers began showing it to distributors. Here is Line talking about this process a year later on The Charlie Rose Show. I should note that this was 19 years before many allegations of sexual harassment against Rose became public. Then I showed it, I didn't, um, it was shown, I didn't personally show it really, but I, it was shown to different studios and I got a fabulous reaction. I mean, I had letters written to me, I mean, more really than I've ever had on, I would say, any other movie, um, saying they were overwhelmed by the picture and it was very gratifying, it was wonderful. And, and certainly two, and I think maybe more, executives from studios said they wanted it for their studio. And then they kind of faded away. And I, I, and I was given to understand that corporate decisions were taken, decision, decisions above them, not to get involved with this um, subject matter. And I do think that the climate in this country has changed quite enormously, really. 
um, in the last five or six years. I mean, I, I, this movie would have come out easily in the 80s. No problem. So the, poli 70s. the political climate in America has changed, and yes. so therefore there was a, the studios thought there was a risk factor with this movie and didn't, it was too hot to handle. Yes, it was nothing, honestly, it was nothing to do with financial considerations yeah. at all. Lolita premiered at the San Sebastian Film Festival in September 1997, with its U.S. distribution prospects still unclear. Line and Irons spoke at a festival press conference about what the New York Times described as the silent burial the film was getting in the States, amidst the timid tyranny of political correctness. As Line put it, The atmosphere in America has become very moralistic in the last three years, similar to the way it was in the 1950s. Critics at the festival were surprised, according to Variety's David Rooney, that given the deadly word of mouth circulating prior to the pick's unveiling, the result is not the total failure that was expected. The widest complaint at San Sebastian was that, at 137 minutes, Lolita was too long. Three months earlier, in an essay in The Village Voice, Richard Goldstein had suggested that the murder of six-year-old John Benet Ramsey and subsequent media frenzy surrounding the search for her killer might provide the topical hook that would make some studio take a chance on distributing Lolita. If anything, Goldstein suggested, the cultural obsession with this six-year-old pageant star and her death, which some speculated occurred during a sexual assault, suggested that Lolita didn't go far enough. Quote, Lolita was 12, but these days, the cunning use of cosmetics and tutoring in the arts of coquetry can turn a six-year-old into a sex object. Perhaps the horror we feel over John Bonet is really a shock of recognition. Her image forces us to face something we prefer not to notice. The nymphette is getting younger. Even Humbert's age range began at nine. But in fact, John Bonet was merely the highest profile example of a wave of panic over pedophilia that unquestionably did a disservice to the commercial prospects of Lyne's film. In five years, the media had moved from obsessing over that teenage slut, Amy Fisher, to wall-to-wall -to -wall coverage of the murder of a very young child whose parents had dressed her up like a Vegas showgirl. There was no evidence that John Bonet had been sexually assaulted by her murderer or that there was a sexual motive to the crime. But because there were so many photos and videos of her made up to look like an adult woman, and seemingly performing sexuality, many viewers of television coverage believed there must be a sexual element to the crime. And TV producers wanted them to think that so that they would get addicted to watching. And it wasn't just John Bonet. Tabloid and TV news at this time was full of stories about adults revealing their recovered memories of childhood sexual abuse, of Mary Kay Letourneau, the teacher who went to prison for raping a 12-year-old who had been her student when he was in second grade, and other scandals involving adults having sex with kids or teens. All of this allowed Americans to consume content about the sexualization of kids and teens from the position of a moral high ground. 
in this climate, watching a film like Lolita was presumed to rip the moral high ground out from under the viewer, implicating them in the pedophilic gaze. In a later interview, Line mused about this moment. When I first started preparing the movie um, and casting and looking for locations and this sort of thing was four or five years ago. Nobody really was talking about pedophilia. I mean, you weren't reading about it day after day in the newspapers. You weren't seeing it on television. There seemed to all of a sudden be an obsession with pedophilia. I think that this movie would have come out without any problem in the 80s, without any problem in the 70s. I think in America now, it would be very difficult for Scorsese to make Taxi Driver. Impossible, I think. Maybe it was, in one sense, not the right time to be making this movie, but maybe in another sense, it's exactly the right time. I think it is in the end. What's interesting is that within this climate, which apparently made every studio afraid to distribute Lolita, it's not like everyone just stopped trying to make money off of images teasing youthful sexuality. Fashion critic Susie Menkes reported from the fall shows in October 1997 what she saw as a troubling Lolita vibe in shows and ad campaigns from brands such as Miu Miu and Versus, the younger-skewing sub-labels of Prada and Versace. Citing an unnamed company's press release as referencing Lolita's timeless charm, Menkes declared, It is time to put an early end to such dangerous and subversive fashion speak. Interestingly, Menkes asked Michia Prada, designer of Miu Miu, if she had been influenced by Lyon's Lolita film, which had recently debuted in Europe, but probably not before Prada would have designed this collection. I wasn't thinking of Lolita, the designer said, adding that her models look like that because they are so young. The star of Miu Miu's 1997 campaign was the waifish 16-year-old model Audrey Marnay. And at that time, 16 and waifish was considered both the height of high fashion and of mainstream desirability. Earlier, I mentioned the 1995 Calvin Klein campaign, which seems to have been an aesthetic reference for Fiona Apple's notorious criminal music video. Directed by Mark Romanek, criminal was widely seen at the time as evoking amateur pornography. It features then 19-year-old Apple stripping out of lingerie, sometimes styled to look more mature than her age, and sometimes wearing her hair in pigtails, as though to suggest she could be much younger. The Washington Post called it, quote, a kiddie porn-style peep show in the manner of Larry Clark's kids. This video was ostensibly made to promote Apple's debut album, which also included a song called Sullen Girl, a devastating piano ballad describing the rape she experienced at the age of 12. It did a good job of promotion. Criminal became a Billboard mainstream top 40 hit, and the album it was on sold almost 3 million copies in the U.S. alone. Many, in 1997 and later, wanted to paint Apple, who signed her record contract when she was still a minor, as a victim who performed this video against her will. But she has actually spoken with more nuance about the experience than many of Criminal's critics, 
And if anything has been constant in her subsequent 26-year career, it's Apple's refusal to play the victim. For that reason, she hasn't fit neatly into the cycle the culture demands. The constant swirl of idealizing and sexualizing very young female bodies and expressing horror over the very real consequences of the same, of telling young women that they will be rewarded for expressing their sexuality, but then shaming them for doing so, of saying, of course, no adult should ever, ever, ever have sex with a person under the age of 18. But of course it makes perfect sense that they would want to. Lolita doesn't fit into this cycle either. And that fact formed the bulk of Line's defense of his film when it looked like it would never be seen in U.S. theaters. This statement from the Charlie Rose interview was typical. I wanted to do a movie that was kind of shades of gray. I wanted to do a movie that was disturbing. It's a, it's a disturbing novel. You come away kind of feeling feeling disturbed. And I wanted the same thing to happen with a movie. And I think one of the reasons maybe why I've had problems with with this film is that people are disturbed by it, as they should be. And they don't have a kind of a pat black and white reaction. I mean, I didn't want to do, I didn't want to make Humbert Humbert, Jeremy Irons Humbert Humbert. I didn't want, want to make him a kind of, just an evil rat of a man. Because I don't think... I kind of felt that about the other movie, really. I, I never really felt that, that in his screwed-up way that he really did love her. Many people bristle at the idea that Lolita is a love story. But its narrator believes that it is, even as he understands his desire to be, at best, antisocial. Of course, many viewers want a movie that says that only inhuman monsters have sexual desire for children. It would be very convenient if pedophiles were another species, because then we could just spot and kill all of them like cockroaches. Unfortunately, they look like and are human beings. And it is tragic that some human beings abuse others. And one of the things that's especially sick about that is that abusers often believe, or tell themselves, or tell their victims that they are doing what they're doing out of love. I think that is what is being depicted in this movie. Line made the decision to make a version of Lolita that assumes the deluded point of view of the abuser, and though he makes it clear that it is abuse that's happening, a film that assumes the perspective of a child molester is simply not going to work for everyone. Today, movie studios are totally uninterested in releasing films that aren't going to work for everyone. In the 1990s, there were companies, some independent and some subsidiaries of larger corporations, that had slightly different business models built around releasing so-called specialty films, i.e. films that weren't for everyone. Lolita was too expensive for most of these companies, if any of them would have considered taking a chance on the movie, given all the other things we have discussed. So, months passed, and Lolita sat on the shelf, an extremely expensive, potentially toxic paperweight, and its French financiers kept shopping it around and kept lowering their price. Finally, in the summer of 1998, a deal was struck to premiere Lolita on Showtime, in advance of a small theatrical release handled by the Samuel Goldwyn Company, 
which in the 90s frequently took on films with queer or otherwise potentially sensitive sexual content, including I Shot Andy Warhol and Pedro Almodovar's Live Flesh. Around the same time as Lolita, they released Todd Haynes' Velvet Goldmine. The acquisition made sense for Showtime, whose CEO had been trying to program edgier content as a way of competing with HBO. It was working. Showtime was on a three-year streak of increases in subscribers and profits. Yet another anonymous movie executive told the head of Showtime, it's perfect for you because in the privacy of the living room, people can feel comfortable watching that subject matter. But it was obviously not a perfect solution for the filmmakers. Lolita now had, according to Screenwriter Schiff, the very dubious honor of being the most expensive movie ever to have its U.S. premiere on television. Schiff pegged Lolita's final budget at $58 million. By the time the Showtime premiere came around in August 1998, Lolita couldn't have had a worse reputation. The New York Times, which had published plenty of sniping about Lolita from anonymous studio executives, now ran two rave reviews, one by Karen James in the TV section, then another by Janet Maslin in the film section. Calling it the best work of Line's career, Maslin argued that it should be seen in theaters because, for its detail alone, it shines theatrically in ways that weren't fully possible on Showtime. Lolita grossed over $40,000 in a one-week Oscar-qualifying run in Beverly Hills, but it did not get nominated for any Oscars, and its U.S. box office gross topped out at just over $1 million. And then it just kind of disappeared. Line has only made two features since Lolita. The first, Unfaithful, came out four years after Lolita, and when I revisited press coverage of that film, I was surprised to find that Lolita was rarely mentioned in reviews and interviews with Line. Lolita was a very high-profile commercial disaster that received press coverage over the course of four years. And you would think the standard way of narrativizing Line's career in writing about his next film would be to position Unfaithful as a comeback, or an apology of sorts for having made Lolita. After all, Unfaithful focuses on the sexuality not of a preteen, but of a quote-unquote older woman. Star Diane Lane was 37 in 2002, when being 37 was more like what being 50 or 60 is today. In the Washington Post, critic Stephen Hunter negatively compared Unfaithful to Fatal Attraction, but made no mention of Lolita. In the New York Post, Lou Luminette complained that with Unfaithful, Line delivered nonstop moralizing possibly an implicit reference to what he may not have done enough of in Lolita, but not a direct one. And since 2022, when Line's Deep Water was released, the filmmaker has been doing a lot of interviews that touch on his larger filmography, including a press tour this year for the 40th anniversary of Flashdance. And yet, Lolita never seems to come up. The people interviewing him probably haven't seen it. To be fair, they don't seem to want to talk to him about Jacob's Ladder either. Another extremely challenging film, albeit for different reasons. What Lyons actually trying to do in terms of filmmaking and storytelling in both Jacob's Ladder and Lolita 
is extremely sophisticated, but it's a lot easier to reduce him to the most thrilling and garish moments of his filmography, his unfortunate tendency to put his foot in his mouth when talking about his movies, and the moments when he hit the zeitgeist square on the head. Next week, we are going to talk about the post-Lolita evolution of 90s Lolita culture, involving a few cultural products that, if anyone was actually using the Child Pornography Protection Act to criminalize the depiction of teenagers having sex, would have put a few people in jail. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like this show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, YouMustRememberThisPodcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember This content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Now, top-tier subscribers to Patreon can hear ad-free episodes. You can also subscribe to ad-free episodes on Apple Podcasts. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.